This podcast is brought to you by the new term at fxphd.com. We have a fantastic lineup of new courses this term, including Nuke, Moto, Maya Bifrost, Touch Designer, Cinema 4D, Houdini, and a bunch more. Check them all out at fxphd.com. Hi and welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, episode 182. Gosh, I can see 200 in the uh, in the far distant horizon. This time uh, we're joined joining Captain America, the Winter Soldier, uh, as they retackle some familiar and perhaps new uh, Marvel universe. And I'm joined by Matt Wallen. How are you, Matt? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm super uh, excited to talk about this one. And uh, Ian Fails, how are you, Ian? Good, Mike. How are you going? Good. So uh, this is part of an ever-expanding Marvel universe, and uh, I have something that I particularly like about this. If you know me, you'll know what it is before I even say it, um, but that's in the visual effects department coming up. But uh, before we get to that, uh, and my absolute favorite shot of the year, um, I'm going to uh, just see what you guys thought about the film in general. Matt, did you enjoy seeing Cap back on the big screen? Yeah, I really did. Like, I... I um I was going to mention, you know, uh, when I was a little kid, uh, I lived uh, in Southern California and my family and I would go for a couple of weeks uh, every year, super far away to further Southern California and stay on the beach, uh, Mission Beach in San Diego. And my dad and I used to walk uh, along the beach um, every day. We'd go to uh, 7-Eleven or every other day and he'd get me a Slurpee and a comic book. And so this was in the 1970s, and I was a big fan of Iron Man and Captain America in particular. And at that time in the 70s, Captain America's um, partner was the Falcon, but he had this cool red and white uh, spandex outfit and stuff. And um, I was such a big fan of those as a kid that when I saw the trailers uh, for this film and kind of some of the early word where it said that it was going to have the Falcon in it, uh, the two of those characters teaming up, I was my inner child uh, <laughs> was really excited. So uh, I was really excited to see it. And um, I really enjoyed the film. I thought it was really well uh, executed. And I, I actually, in a weird way, I enjoyed it more than the first film. Oh, I actually think so too. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, I agree with that. I thought this was better. I thought it was helped a lot by having him um, have uh, Black Widow along for the ride. She introduced some good humor. Totally. Um, and also I think it was a little, I mean, I, I have a problem with Captain America only insofar it's just so overtly rah-rah over the top. Um, they kind of <laughs> totally, address yeah. that in the first one a bit because, you know, the whole 1940s thing, you could kind of get away with it. But I was thinking, how are they going to get over him wearing this outfit in uh, in the present day? You know, like it's going to be kind of awkward. Um, <laughs> it's going to be like everyone's sitting around going, did, did I not get the invitation to the fancy dress party? Um, but, you know, I thought they kind of weave that pretty well. What about you, Ian? Yeah, I mean, I, there's so many reasons I did like this film. I think the main reason is the way it fit into the, as you were sort of saying before, the expanding Marvel universe. And I thought it was a, a really clever twist. And here's some spoilers, obviously. Um, the Hydra sort of connection, you know, I didn't actually see that coming. And um, I just thought that helped sell this film into the Marvel universe um, and in some ways, it's sort of one of the lead films in that Marvel universe, along with the Avengers um, films as well. 
Yeah, because I didn't like Hydra in the first uh, Captain America film because um, I just found the whole skull face thing to be verging. I mean, look, I know it's a bit weird, but I just don't like the kind of supernaturally kind of weird face stuff of the first Hydra. Everything else was fine about it, you know, but then it just got a bit kind of like uh, too comic-y, I guess is the way to describe it for me um, in the first film. Yeah, well, I think, too, the other thing they did in this movie that I think was really successful, and I think the um, the writers, uh, the co-writers mentioned that as well, um, that they really were looking at a lot of those films um, from the sort of post-Watergate 70s era. They were looking at films like The Parallax View and All the President's Men and um, Three Days of the Condor. Great and film. kind of... Yeah, totally. I mean, really, all three of those movies actually are a really great yep. triptych if you're looking for a, a really great 70s conspiracy uh, weekend. But um, <laughs> I thought that they, they really did. Um, it had a lot of the real kind of action set pieces that you'd really expect from a big Marvel franchise picture. But at the same time, too, there was enough um, in terms of plot development and sort of an, a level of intrigue and the investigation and sort of following what was going on to have the film work, I think, maybe on a more... Um, for lack of a better word, like a more adult level in a way. Well, see, now what I think is interesting is that in the comic books, and I'm absolutely not a comic book reader, never was particularly, but um, from my impression of it, they got good when they had a dark side. You know, they got interesting when they had uh, them either challenged, uh, you know, rejecting their kind of hero status or just generally doing a whole kind of dark night kind of thing. Dare I drop that in? And um, and what I found about this is that not only did this film work because of this uh, whole idea that S.H.I.E.L.D. was not the perky red, white and blue, uh, you know, saviour of uh, mankind, but it made the TV show phenomenally more interesting. The S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show got way yeah. more interesting in the last few weeks. Uh, as a consequence. So busting up S.H.I.E.L.D. is such a good move and it sets a great stage, I think, for the next Avengers film that it isn't just some sort of global super organisation that's all perky and fine and without any problems. Um, And it's funny because I've seen them try and do that sometimes in the Star Trek universe, not the latest films, and it, it fell into making it a more administrative, boring organisation but making it a corrupt organization um, made it just phenomenally interesting. So I thought that was good. I thought uh, having um, Fury playing such an interesting role made it good. Uh, all around a good good ride, I thought. I, I, heard, I haven't been able to see much of the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show, but I, I heard some people say something very similar, Mike, except that they had wished that this movie had come a bit earlier in the S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show because it wasn't until the movie that the show was fantastic. And I... It's sort of an interesting thing. It feels like they were holding out, you know, for the movie and maybe to the detriment of the show, which is done pretty well on ABC, but not sort of spectacularly well. Yeah, the last few weeks have been much better, though. Yeah, I think I would agree. I mean, I've been watching the show pretty regularly with my my 10-year-old son, who for the most part likes it, although I will say this, in the last... um, the last week's episode of agents of shield where they actually, they went past the narrative of this film. There was one scene where there's a couple characters in, um, including, um, what's his name? Agent Colson. And they're in a car falling and it was <laughs> out of the plane, um, before he's able to fire the jets on his, uh, super awesome Lola. old school Corvette. Yeah. And, uh, the, uh, it, it was, they could have used some compositing help from the team uh, of compositors that worked on uh, 
Captain America film in that shot for the TV show. Okay. I totally agree. That was a bit hokey, the falling out of the plane sequence. That being said, you know, episodic television versus a, a tentpole Marvel I, I summer I'm, picture with ILM yeah, and everybody budget else. Budget-wise, it's... I'm being a yeah. little facetious, but, you know, yeah. just throwing that out there. Okay, so the uh, the roster on this film is uh, what, Ian? Who, who are the uh, principal companies? Well, I know one of them, obviously, is ILM, because I went there and spoke to the guys, yeah. but for everyone who doesn't know. Yeah, that's right. ILM's the heavy hitter, and, and they did the helicarriers and a lot of Washington and Falcon. Um, but there's some big shots by other studios, including um, Scanline. Uh, there's also Luma Pictures, Whiskey Tree, The Embassy. And then there's uh, Lola, who did Old Peggy, which I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about. It's just fantastic. And, of course, Old Peggy is, in fact, what I was alluding to at the start of the show. Um, I, I Literally, I would drink uh, their bathwater. I think Lola VFX, just uh, magnificent. Uh, you know, I mean, look... A lot of these companies do really, really great work, but uh, I guess I can really appreciate just how friggin' clever uh, their work is on um, the, the same team that, of course, that did uh, Skinny Steve in the first one, and do some Skinny Steve in this one. So let's let's start there because I've brought it up. Um, this is uh, aging makeup. Now, aging makeup is traditionally really hard to do. In fact, I actually spoke to some visual effects guys, uh, special effects guys about this. And we're thinking of doing something with, um, you know, uh, classic aging. And there's like, no, we don't want to do it. It's just too hard. It's really difficult to make work. It's hard for people to act under the makeup. It's just a nightmare. And so, uh, Ian, give us the blow-by-blow on what Lola came up with solution-wise just uh, before we start the discussion in terms of how effective we think it was, which was awesome. Yeah. Well, you're exactly right. So they were going to rely on on shooting Haley Atwell, who plays Peggy Carter, um, firstly just with no makeup and just some tracking dots, and then shoot her in old age makeup. Um, and when they did shoot her in old age makeup, of course, as you say, they she weren't getting the same performance they could get because she was under layers of silicone or whatever it was. So what they decided to do was actually get an elderly actress and shoot her filming the same lines as Haley had performed without makeup and then in the flame effectively combine those two performances together transpose the elderly lady's um, you know skin and the creases and wrinkles and all those things that you would have in sort of older skin onto the original Haley Atwell performance um, and you know they just they just nailed it really didn't they they just really have a, a great technique down pat for that what do you think Matt yeah I mean I think you know it Lola when it comes to the skinny Steve effects as we talked about I think on the um, the first Captain America show um, and I was thinking of those shots of him um, from this film too I mean uh, they they really have carved out. I, you know, I'm tempted to say a niche, but I think it's more than a niche. Like, I mean, it's a, it's more, um, more aptly maybe described as like a, a true area of expertise um, in the way in which they're able to deal with and address and augment um, these actors in this way. And, you know, I did not even know uh, that the, uh, the, uh, what, what's the uh, female character? Uh, Peggy. We were just Peggy. I did not realize that that was actually, um, done in the way that Ian just described. So, I mean, that's really amazing. I actually thought it was um, some either old age makeup or a different actress, um, but it was just phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's, I, it was, I was thumbing through the, um, the dossier and there's a couple pictures of sort of a both before and after. Uh, and I mean, it's just, 
it's so incredible. It's again, like another total uh, tour de force accomplishment, I think, on the part of the team at Lola that they're able to achieve, um, you know, sort of almost a reverse effect, you know, now going, they've done the, um, was it in the uh, X-Men first class where they sort of did the de-aging, right? Yep. Uh, and now here they're they're going in the other direction. And it's just, uh, it's amazing work. And it's so exciting. It's so kind of, um, it's kind of a different kind of work too than the real, um, you know, sort of bombastic type of effects. It's a more subtle effect. It's like really powerful. Yeah, it's, it's gorgeous, gorgeous stuff. And this isn't a case of just somebody saying, let's do it all in 3D. Mm. And I think what I like most about it is that because they could keep certain aspects of Haley's performance, you know, i.e. the actual movement of the head, but also things like her eyes, um, you really felt like it was Haley. you know, even though it was the older actresses um, skin effectively you know what I think I mean apart from the fact that this is really good and I can't begin to agree with you more Matt about this you sort of have this moment is that the same actress yeah and I did that yeah. with the original skinny Steve how did, how did they do that did they just <laughs> cast that I mean the thing for me is I actually think the skinny Steve in this is a better skinny Steve and the reason why I say that is in the first skinny Steve I, I had that you know does it is it the same actress uh, same actor and I was unsure and of course later became to appreciate that it was in this one it really seemed more like the actor and yet it was just as valid as a skinny version of him and somehow more of his natural face facial expressions performance whatever seemed to come through so i it was like even a little bit more jaw-dropping as it were um than i think last time has anyone else noticed that or yeah i i thought i thought too i would agree i think the steve performance like it felt like it had there was more life, more movement yeah. in the head and in the face. It felt more dynamic. It felt more alive. And in a way, I would even say, yes, I think it was better. But it was because it was so much better, it was equally more arresting. And knowing that it's an effect, watching this movie from the previous, I actually almost kind of found it more disturbing in a way. Not not in a negative way that took me out of the film, I think, but just where it was so well executed, it was like, it was kind of frightening, you know, because it, it was so, uh, what's his name, Chris Evans, you know, yep. still so much him, yep. but so not him, you know. Well, what's interesting about that is also, I think there's two skinny Steve shots, there's sort of that flashback. On the, the balcony to the... or the... There's, there's but, one at this uh, Air Force, I mean, the Army base, and there's, there's one, one at the, at the door base. after the mother's death. Yeah, at yeah. The, on the doorstep, I think the reason why I also thought that looked better and, and more natural was that the camera's moving around a lot. And apparently when they were filming, you know, the, the visual effects supervisor was hoping that it might be somewhat of a locked-off shot, but then the, the DOP sort of took the steady cam or, or camera and sort of started backing up the steps and... You know, ultimately, I think it makes for such much more natural See, they did, shot. They did a good job on Hugo as well with anti-aging um, makeup. It's the same team. and uh, But I don't think they've been... I don't think they've been better than they have in this film, basically. And I tell you one of the reasons why. I just, I swear to God, you could just watch old Peggy and at no point does it say visual effect. There's nothing about the framing. There's nothing about the lighting, the performance. The, there's not an uncanny valley. There's just like, there's yeah, nothing I didn't that even, I didn't out. even know it was an effect. I didn't even realize it until, yeah. until we started just talking about it just tonight. But how liberating for the actress that you could just sit in the bed and give the performance and not have to work your way through. I mean, okay, she had what, Ian, about a dozen dots on her face? 
like yeah, something. that's all it was in the in the first shoot of Haley. That's right. But if you were an actor right now and you had to play this kind of a role, you'd say, wouldn't you? Like, I can give you a much better performance if you can just not make me get up at four o'clock in the morning and sit in a makeup chair for three hours, or or worse. And uh, I'll give you a much better performance if I can actually be on the set with normal lighting, just interacting with the actor and just be in the moment and not have a lot of people fussing and worrying. I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's a great example of where, you know, the technology and the, the expertise that they developed in particular with these types of techniques, it is really, a, I think, a, a prime example of the kinds of things that, um, you know, you're now able to do as a, as a filmmaker um, in telling stories like this, you can actually utilize the actors you want, the um, actors who, you know, played roles in previous movies, and you can do really dynamic and interesting things um, with them in, uh, through post-production techniques that, you know, were hitherto before totally impossible. So, I mean, I think it's a really exciting um, uh, development in terms of the realm of possibilities that it opens up. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a really interesting one. And I, um, how many shots are they doing in the end, Ian? Like... I'm not sure how many Lola did in the end. It, obviously, it wasn't too many. But what's what's also interesting is that they didn't actually go into filming Haley with this in mind. You know, it really was about using um, prosthetic makeup or a lookalike because they also shot a lookalike of Haley with the makeup and had planned a sort of digital trend, transposition. You know, but it was kind of like. Um, uh, the visual effects supervisor from Lola, who's Edson Williams, described it as this Hail Mary idea where he just thought, why don't we just give this a go, you know, the, the technique that we've talked about. And they actually did it first with a still frame of the older actress and apparently that looked really good. So, of course, moving footage was going to also work well and, and it did. Well, I don't know. Also, I mean, like, I mean, well, I agree with you that it did work well. Like, it's uh, more than an order of magnitude harder to get the moving footage to work over a still. Like, I mean, you can find Photoshop something pretty... Well, for that matter, you can do a fairly good V-Ray 3D render of a digital person and sell it, but get that person to animate and lip sync, and it's really hard. And and I think that's where it, it really makes a difference. It's the performance. Because under that makeup, we've all seen actors do that. They look like they're kind of got... Um, I don't know, like a weight on their face because they literally mm-hmm. do. That means that you go, it's kind of, the mouth doesn't move that much. It's not that expressive. It's almost like they've, um, you know, and it can't be that um, pleasant. I know some actors have put on that makeup and found the character as a result. Like they've looked in the mirror and that's really helped them kind of get into character. But surely once you're acting, if you've got the costume and stuff, not having that stuff all over your face must, must help a heap. Well, that, that's actually a really good point. I wonder, I mean, it's in, it's interesting you bring that up just anecdotally from sort of the actor's point of view, that idea of, you know, the affectation, the the costume, the mask, whatever it might be, um, helping find the performance. I wonder if there, for some actors, you know, with technology like this, that's so successful and works so well, could it ever be the case that, um, you know, it's sort of the you know, the, the classic um, statement that you hear, you heard stated more so maybe in the mid-1990s when things were going really heavily towards digital where it was actors, you know, on a green screen stage and, you know, is something lost? You know, I wonder if there's, uh, there might be a, a certain actors who would feel like they really wanted to have some of the, the more um, prosthetic components in place to help them. Uh, I mean, it's an, inter- an, an interesting uh, thought anyway. 
Yeah, I guess that's true that I I could see somebody saying they would get better, you know, like more into the character when they looked in the mirror and they had the makeup on and stuff. I remember the guy who played Data in Star Trek got to play an old the Sinyan Sung or something. God, everyone from Star Trek's going to hate me for not knowing that. <laughs> anyway, the guy that that developed Data and he got to play that person, that that role as both him as the robot, him as the creator. And he said as soon as he put the makeup on, he just found the character. And I, I get that. But by the same token, I can't imagine um, acting under a mask is a helpful way to get a nuanced performance. Well, you and, sure wouldn't think so. Yeah. No. And, of course, you can apply digital makeup to fix up sort of normal makeup. In other words, you know, hide the seams, blend a bit better, do a few things that haven't been possible. But... Uh, I don't know. I just think this is a spectacularly good work. If is it right for everybody? Probably not, but it certainly worked a treat in this. By the way, um, we have a the reason I was asking Ian about those stats is Ian um, uh, sort of spearheaded our, our coverage on FX Guide on this. So there's quite a comprehensive story that you posted. Um, a little delayed, Ian, from the start of the film uh, hitting the cinemas. Yes, I think Marvel were worried about spoilers. Um, so mainly the Hydra thing, but. Um not really sure why. It seems like everyone in the world has seen this film. Yeah. So. We, uh, so we wanted to have this VFX show once that was out because we meant we could refer to it. And uh, you could obviously, this is an audio podcast. You want to see some of the pictures, the before and afters, for example, that uh, Matt was referring to a second ago. We have all those um, in the old and new Peggy uh, in that article. Someone once said to me, how on earth can you do a visual effects show on the radio effectively? And I was like, well, it's pretty easy when you've got a website as well. Um, one of the things we did early, though, much earlier than this article, is a uh, piece with our media partners, Wired, on the um, helicarriers. So let's move there next. And, uh, Matt, the helicarriers, bigger and badass uh, than last time. Three instead of one. Uh, this is ILM's uh, kind of zone. I think there was 2,500 visual effects shots in total, and ILM handled about 900 of those, um, uh, I'm guessing. I think that's about right. You may know that. Is that right? I think that's about right. I think that's about right, yeah. Yeah, but yep. the helicarriers were certainly um, uh, very much an ILM thing. And, and extending out from that, the environment of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s home, uh, which uh, is uh, located on the Potomac River. I don't know the Potomac, but um, I understand if you do know it well, then it's very well placed on the Potomac. Is that right, Matt? Yeah, I mean, it's not uh, two hours north of here, and uh, I get a chance to go up there fairly often uh, as my... Um, my in-laws live in Northern Virginia, um, not far from DC. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I would say the work that ILM did, uh, actually, let me go back. Probably the first thing I would say is that, uh, I was genuinely, uh, excited about this movie for a host of reasons that I mentioned at the beginning. But one other reason is that the ILM visual effects supervisor is, uh, Russell Earl and Russell Earl, uh, in my opinion, is one of the uh, another one of the nicest guys in the business, um, and he's a guy that I've known since the very beginning of my career in visual effects. He and I started roughly around the same time, and uh, he was a tape IO uh, technical assistant uh, working in a trailer between buildings in the early days of ILMCG when they were still up in San Rafael. And I believe Russell started on the, the graveyard shift, um, and always was such a, like, uh, you know, he had a, a background in, um, I think in computer science as well as he does a lot of, uh, 
architecture, uh, furniture design type work uh, in his own uh, studio. But such a great guy. I was so excited to hear about uh, him getting a chance to sort of fly solo, as it were, uh, supervising on this job. But um, the ILM work, I think, is so spectacular from the helicarriers and even maybe more than the helicarriers themselves, which is saying a lot. I think the thing that really blew me away in this movie uh, from an effect standpoint was the environment work. I think the environment work um, of the digital DC, um, because they weren't able to shoot uh, in uh, aerial photography in DC because of all the super restrictive um, flight restrictions that they have there um, for obvious reasons, I guess it being the, uh, the capital of the U S right. Um, and all the landmarks and all that kind of stuff. But um, the digital recreation of the city, but then all of these digital environments from the really cool uh, shield headquarters building um, and uh, tons of shots in there. And then all of the stuff of the, um, in particular, the the Potomac River opening up to reveal uh, these. That was great, wasn't it? The, oh, my God, an amazing shot. Um, and to reveal these three helicarriers that, um, you know, is sort of a a variation on the helicarrier we saw in, uh, what was it, in the first Avengers movie, which, you know, I think the helicarrier is cool as a thing but it's just such a ridiculous idea of uh, that being said but um but it's actually can we movie. can we have a slight rat hole here because because yeah, yeah. i think we you know we we're going to give this <laughs> film a lot of points for being spectacular and ilm's work in particular is magnificent but if somebody could explain to me why you need to keep a helicarrier dry and under <laughs> underwater like for a start could we just not have it on land somewhere in a building like, is it really necessary to build an under a river uh, kind of thing? Which clearly, if you'd even had a boat going down, it would like bump into the superstructure. And then secondly, in the first one, it was an aircraft carrier that, oh, by the way, flew. Here, it's just a flying block of brick. It's, it's basically like, I've got a flying brick. I'm just going to keep it underwater, but dry <laughs> because it's based on a boat, but looks now like a battleship. I mean, it was like... I mean, I agree that it was cool, but it was actually completely absurd. Yeah, I mean, it's totally ridiculous. If they were three aircraft carriers <laughs> that suddenly became three helicarriers, <laughs> but it was like, we're going to build helicarriers, but no longer have them pretending to even be um, aircraft carriers. And quite frankly, we don't want them to get wet. Well, it, yeah, it, takes on, it takes on the veneer of them, and it's sort of part of the plot point of the movie too, where they kind of play on sort of the... Uh, international anxiety uh, around you know drones right it's almost as if they're these well gigantic that, yeah. drone they are aircraft. drones they are, yeah, yeah there, there is okay i'll give you that one i'll give you that this idea of like the drones and the uh, aerial <laughs> gunships it's just why do they need to be carriers like so <laughs> so my my i put this to my kids who are marvel experts and they were like well you got to understand dad that the thing is that it's no longer a secret right because the you know avengers are out and stuff in which case why do they have to sit under the river right like they no longer have to hide in plain sight they can just plight hide can't they just have you know and also while we're at it and just by way of just criticism where the hell was tony stark he provided the oh. uh, the jets i mean i can understand thor was kind of busy on a different dimensional planet in a different you know ABBA well, they, sort of they did test. say that that was something they did talk about. They did say that one of the reasons why, and it's, you know, it's a total conceit, right? 
But I mean, I could buy it, I guess. Like, I mean, it's sort of like in Iron Man 3, like where were the other Avengers, you know? But I think the the, the idea behind this standalone film is that, uh, you know, the, the whole narrative of this supposedly takes place over about 72 hours, if I'm not mistaken. And so <laughs> the the idea would be that there wasn't really... Uh, Time to things call? Things didn't... In- uh, yeah, there wasn't a time. Things didn't evolve quickly enough to uh, call all of the Avengers into play. Well, also, but didn't Tony Stark get rid of all his suits at the end well, of well, Iron Man? Yeah, no, so you know, you, I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> but but if he did that, he still is providing tons of cool tech, as in the helicarrier's big jet things, and also yeah, yeah, the, the Stark tech is it's it's good to replace the old uh, giant fan blades too, because that seemed like. It was incredibly dangerous. If you got too close, it seemed like you would just immediately get sucked in from above. I always thought that was sort of a problem. (laughs) Slight design flaw. Yeah. I mean, these these are basically battleships. They shouldn't be aircraft carriers because the motif is a gunship, right? Effectively now, right? They're not. Well, they were adapted to be gunships. Yeah, but that's what they are. They are. They've got a lot of guns, and they're battleship style guns. I mean, in in essence. I understand why they did it. It's cool. I get the whole thing with the. Whatever. They'd be really cool as spacecraft. Like they're more like the the battleship Yamamoto from the Star Blazers. Uh, I thought you were going to go with uh, um, what was the film that um, uh, with the bugs? You know that uh, the satirical, not satirical, but you know um, Starship Troopers. Yeah, yeah. There's mm. some great mm. aerial oh, yeah. kind of space battleshipy things where they slowly kind of drift into each other and do stuff uh, in that. Anyway, but th- but given that they are ridiculous, I will say this though: I do they're think good ridiculous. <laughs> their execution is insane. The textures on the helicarriers, in my opinion, in, actually across the entire movie, the textures on all the digital models, I feel like they were turned up to eleven. I mean, I feel like we were looking at something texture-wise that was so different in terms of the level of just incredible level of detail and the level of variation too, not just on the helicarriers, but on the, um, all the, the jets on the deck of the helicarriers too. Like, like, even the paneling on the side of the helicarrier. Oh, it was insane. Oh, it was just it was gorgeous. Insane. I mean, it really yeah. was just, yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I would say that texturing spectacular, but also the actual Potomac River um, underground shipyard thing both when they come out and when they crash back into it, the texturing oh, on that cool. environment was jaw-dropping. Well, and and as you said, Mike, I mean, a ridiculous conceit that it is under the river, but what a cool um, aesthetic design, uh, a set of design choices that were made in sort of the the appearance of that space and what it looked like when you were both... Um, under under the river before uh, it opens up and also when you're above the river looking down in i thought that you know it's absurd but the sort of the industrial construction of the space itself and the um the design elements like it you look at it even in some of the really wide vista shots and there's a ton of oh yeah huge vistas in this movie um it looks totally as ridiculous as it, as it is, it looks real. You know, it looks photo real. I think the other thing too, Matt, is that by having it under the river and, and having it there, um, in a lot of recent sort of comic book films, there's always been a lot of destruction. And although there is a lot of destruction ultimately of the helicarriers and it does crash into a building, 
um, it do, because it's not in New York City or somewhere else, it sort of feels like a different climactic scene than we've seen in some recent films. Um, yeah, it sort of I'm, doesn't tear up Washington, D.C. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I also think, you know, another thing that's kind of cool from, if you think of the, really the the target audience, I mean, like, I mean, I still feel like I'm the target audience, even though I'm, what, 40 four i think now but it, you know my son who's 10 you know he went with us to see this and he just you know blows his mind he's totally into it and i just can't help but think like you know if you're a kid and next time we go up to dc you know we're going to be driving across the bridge onto constitution avenue and he's going to look out over that river and be like i wonder where that helicarrier base is located you know it's <laughs> under that river somewhere and so it's it's kind of a fun thing too in the mind of you know, kids that go to see this stuff to have that kind of, to have their imagination sparked um, where everyday things could become extraordinary. And I think that's kind of one of the cool things about some of the elements of the Marvel, the Marvel universe that uh, I think I always liked as a kid. And I think they do a great job in encapsulating those ideas in the way they execute these movies. Yeah. I mean, it is, yeah, there is, there is spectacular work here. I, I want to plug one other thing. One of the things that I find sometimes can look super hokey is people flying around. Like even in uh, not the most recent Superman, but the one before that was like, didn't do it for me. That just the motion of the person in flight uh, doesn't work. And in here, we've got Falcon flying around the helicarriers. And there's some of it's got to be wire work. Obviously, a bunch of it's going to be digital doubles. But it never felt like they got the physics wrong of the character uh, their wings, their motion of their wings, and the motion of the camera relative to them, relative to the background. Because there's a three, there's a three pronged problem here. You know, you want the guy to look like he's flying sensibly. You want the camera, which is independently flying of him, to be sort of relationally correct. But then you want the whole of the world behind not to sort of seem like it's shearing to the left or to the right um, because of that. And that's actually a lot harder than it sounds. In fact, for most of the history of visual effects, when someone had to fly on wires, I think it was pretty unsuccessful. Um, and yet here, I think Falcon's flying around, dodging bomb stuff was was very well done. And it's a hard problem to crack because I think at, at some level, it's just got to come down to not being a sim problem, but being an artist animating problem. What yeah. do you guys think? I, I totally agree. And I also think they did a great job of avoiding him looking like Superman or looking like Iron Man, who we all... No, and you know that's probably based on the fact that those wings sort of make him more like a glider. I'm, I'm trying to remember if he had propulsion. Yeah, he did. I, there is on the backpack. Yeah, yeah. right, right. But in, even then, he still felt different than those other characters that we we know and, yep. and we actually love. And that's what that's what made him different and made him exciting. I think. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think you know the other thing too is the. Um, they went with a design for Falcon that was very different than the sort of, you know, original comic book design, which is kind of, it would look sort of ridiculous. Uh, like, I mean, like, like the uh, Captain America costume, kind of <laughs> similar in problem um, in terms of the color and the sort of design aesthetic. And they went with a design that came from a later version of the Falcon from my, from what I understand anyway, from the, ultimate marvel ultimates or something i don't know but where he's a an ex just like in the story he's sort of this uh former military um specialist who has uh been given access to this 
um, apparatus that he becomes really adept at utilizing. And I thought the way in which the wings, um, the way in which they deployed, and also the way in which they um, uh, retracted back into the backpack was really dynamic and interesting. And they achieved something that I don't, I didn't really um, think was necessarily going to be possible given sort of the original um, perceptions that uh, I had just from the early trailers, which, uh, you know, made me a little bit skeptical. It's like, oh, it's the Falcon, but it's kind of different, you know. But they actually had it so that he was able to move his arms in such a way and the wings unfolded in such a way that the shape was still extremely falcon-like mm. the wings came to a point at the end and they still kind of had that similar sort of shape that you would expect if you saw you know an actual falcon um you know bird in flight and i think that that really gave the flight properties a totally different dynamic than like you were saying before like you'd see an iron man or some other or even in uh, the most recent superman film and so in that respect i thought it was it was really successful and uh, you know, I don't know how much of the work was uh, wire work, as you said, or how much of it was uh, digital doubles. But I mean, you know, it, that was also a testament, I thought, to um, the great work that uh, that ILM was doing too. Is that the the digital doubles, uh, at least for my money, like I I couldn't tell which was which. I think um, there was a fine line to be walked like you had to believe that falcon wasn't a supernatural um you know bird man um but you also wanted to have that curvature in the wings that had the bird-like sort of tonality yeah and uh and that curvature especially when he was doing a roll i felt worked really well it was it was well, a very or when, aesthetically or when pleasing. he when they were sort of like forward like before he would jump he would kind of throw his wings forward like almost in front of him mm. and they came to this point and i thought that that was where they really were accentuated because you saw the two points at the tips of the wings kind of together in front of him before he would sort of leap off the helicarrier or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was, it was a very um, attractive silhouette that they were managing to, uh, to do with him. And, you know, frankly, uh, I don't want to sound like this is kind of weird, but I I was nice to see a non, you know, white boy uh, kind of up on the screen doing something. Sure. Yeah. I don't, I actually, I don't think that's weird at all. I mean, I think that's, you know, I think that's actually really cool. I mean, as a kid, you know, I, I didn't really, I think I just thought he was a cool character, you know? And so seeing it, uh, seeing him brought into that universe, um, you know, today at this, at the present moment, I think, yeah, it's great. It's great to get more diversity in the Marvel universe. It would be great to have, um, and they definitely played up more of, um, Black Widow's character too, but it would be great to have, even more stronger, you know, female characters where they were the direct lead in the story as well for, you know, young women and girls too to kind of feel like they had a, a stake in the, <laughs> the fate yeah. of the future of the world, you know. I mean, I, mean, I, th- I think it is important. I was, I'm, I'm sure you've probably heard this before, but uh, I heard Whoopi Goldberg speaking and she was saying not only did she want to get into Star Trek as in the next generation because um, Uhura was the, you know, in the uh, first Star Trek, um, not only was it, you know, I'd heard the sort of the comment before, uh, paraphrased, where she said the reason she wanted to get it was that she was the only black woman in the future. I thought that was kind of a an offhand comment. I didn't realize that Ahura was the only, like the first African American uh, in the future in a sci-fi, apparently an American kind of uh, television uh, genre. They just hadn't had 
an African-American in the future kind of thing, like a woman like that. And so it wasn't just that it was good to have it. It was like the only one that existed. And uh, I think it is um, incredibly important to a whole bunch of uh, people that, you know, as in the same way you want a country to have its stories told, I think it's incredibly important to have your ethnic group just visible in a future and in an environment where you're defining heroics. So anyway. well, I think it'd be cool too, like this, you know, coming up this Halloween, I hope I see a lot of, uh, you know, little falcons running around the neighborhood. That'd be pretty groovy. You know? <laughs> that would be so cool. I don't know. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think it's great for anybody who goes to see a really fun, fantastic movie like this, or like you're mentioning like Star Trek or whatever. I mean, it's great in those kind of, um, uh, well, really in any kind of narrative, but in those kind of narratives in particular, where it is, you know, largely fantasy or science fiction or whatever, to suggest that, like, you know, the truth, which is that, you know, there's there's any a call for any and all types of people, uh, you know, of all backgrounds, all genders, all, you know, persuasions, what have you, like to be represented within the context of those narratives. I mean... Speaking of which, there must have been an off-screen kung fu martial arts expert that was hanging out with Steve because he seemed to be a, a whole lot more, um, you know, I don't know, martial artsy in his fighting than the sort of punching um, one-two, you know, Cambridge rules of the hey, first film. I, that's true, but you know, if you think about it, like, what is he? Right? He's a super soldier. What is his job? He's a soldier. Like, and I would think, like, he's he's now he's in the the present day and you know they make a several jokes about that and he's got his his list which i think is cool that there was a there's a note what was uh, on your list how, yeah exactly each country had a different list right what was on yours so it, on my list yeah it was different uh, from my list yeah let's see it was like steve jobs uh <laughs> was one of them and disco um one of them was the album uh that uh Oh, Nirvana was one of them. Huh. Uh, we had we had Tim Tams, which is a form of chocolate biscuits, and Skippy the Bush Kangaroo, which was a well, local we, TV what's show. Skippy the Bush Kangaroo. Yeah, yeah, it was a. You've never you know, heard was, of that man? No, no, it was a. So okay, it was our version of Tintin. Yeah, it was the uh, animal that the that the young boy befriends that, hey, Skip, what's that? They're falling down the mine shaft? <laughs> it's that, right? Um, oh, but cool. done with the kangaroo. That, that to open uh, door handles, they had to basically get two uh, presumably dead kangaroo paws on sticks and sort of like, you know, stick them in uh, to uh, do stuff. It was quite hokey is that, is and that, yet is, beloved. Is, is that where the saying bajillicans comes from? You, you sometimes use that turn of phrase that no, is because very, i'm such an, an eloquent chap that's is that an australian thing or is that a is that a, a i think a we should move CMR. on i think we should move on matt um <laughs> so okay so i don't know what anybody else's lists were but you, you know obviously your country was how many were there did anyone need do you know how many there were there was us uk germany uh russia south korea spain australia uh let's see what nice else? touch yeah, I mean, oh, yeah, uh, Bra cool. Brazil, I think, was another one. So, yeah, I mean, it's I was taken not? out of it's the like film when I saw it. I was like, why is he talking about Tim Tams and Skippy the Bush King Griffin? What? <laughs> <laughs> huh? <laughs> so he could be Captain Australia. Yeah, not so much. Um, okay, so... Uh, but, but but that being said, I guess, like, when that, that part of the story, it's indicative of the fact that, like, he's got, you know, all the members of his barbershop quartet are dead, right? You know, they keep making those kind of jokes. So I assume that, you know, with all of his, now his free time where he doesn't really have stuff to do when he's not on an assignment, he's, 
he's training so he's learning all this kind of cool yeah but even so in the second (laughs) uh, in the avengers film i think he was at a punching bag when they found him again just doing traditional punching like he's running through that building when he's first chasing what is revealed to be bucky um you remember that it's like he does that uh what 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 scene he's, is that Ian? That's, he's sort uh, of he's sort of he's he, he's chasing the Winter Soldier after the Winter Soldier yeah, shot. But, but the um, Winter Soldier's he, on a separate building, right? So he's going through walls. Basically. That's right. Yeah. And he's sort of doing almost parkour yeah. in some ways. But sort of he's <laughs> he's going up the walls and um you know, actually when we talked to the visual effects supervisor who's Dan Delu yeah. about the film, you know, that was obviously very much on purpose because they wanted to show that he does have this updated fighting style because he's living in you know modern times. Oh, really? And he's he's been able to adapt his super soldier skills to be a martial arts expert or whatever it was. So I, I think it was very deliberate on the filmmaker's part. I mean, I thought it was a good set piece at the beginning when they were on the uh, on the uh, whatever that star ship was that uh, the shield um, satellite launching. Um, the Lemurian oh, star. Right. I was going to say Lima, yeah, but that's not right, is it? Le- um, the Indian Ocean thing with the pirates, yeah? Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, that fight sequence there uh, was probably the most sort of traditional fight sequence, for want of a better term, that we saw, wasn't it, um, with the uh, mercenary? Yeah, I mean, that was really a real practical, in-your-face type fight, wasn't it, that, that sort of pit, pit them together and, and they were using all sorts of actions, I think, to um, get each other. Well, that's that's actually another really good point, though, too, I think overall about this movie that I thought was really cool that made it more, for me, it made it a lot more fun than sort of the first episode of the um, the Captain America films was that uh, it felt like they really, not to take anything away from all the amazing digital work, but there was so much great practical um mm stunts and practical effects with like vehicles flipping and like things uh you know and great choreographed fight sequences and stuff and i thought that that really added um kind of a flavor to this movie that made it more it grounded it more in a certain kind of reality so that when it did um rise to crazy heights of fantastic with the helicarriers and stuff you you kind of it felt more um it felt more sensational and sort of a crescendo within the narrative, but also it kind of felt like, uh, I don't know. I felt like I cared more somehow. I don't know. I felt like I had been more involved in what was going on with these characters. Maybe part of that too, is that, you know, this is sort of the, now the third time given the Avengers film. Um, and he did make one brief appearance in the Thor movie, if I'm not mistaken too, right? <laughs> it's a joke, well, it's a joke <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but it's like, we sort of are now starting to get to know mm. these characters more too, maybe, but this is probably the biggest, uh, amount of car chases we've seen in a Marvel universe as well, because um, we had the attack on Fury, which was pretty much a car chase at one point, and then we also have the attack on Rogers, Romanoff, and Wilson by the Winter Soldier right. on the um, on the uh, whatever that is, the DC um, kind of. I'm going to say the flyover, but it's uh, some stretch of freeway. Mm. Um, Ian, who did those? Because they they uh, we don't normally get a car chase. No, and I was going to actually going to say, Matt, you're right about. I feel the same about the practical stuff, and that's that chase on that um, DC roadway felt very practical to me, even though there's a lot of visual effects there because they actually shot that in Cleveland, and so they're putting in all the sort of background um, environment, and then also doing CG arm replacements for the Winter Soldier, um, and that was done by Luma Pictures. Um, who I just thought did a great job. And in some ways it's all very invisible because you, 
you you don't even think that he's going to have a, a digital arm, really. It, it looks totally integrated into the scene and sort of reflects what it should be reflecting. So what did he have on set? So I think Legacy Effects made a, a practical arm. Like um, a rubber kind of thing? or a, It was a rubber thing, but, you know, he really has to move that arm a lot, doesn't he? And it has to also, the, the joints in it, the metallic sort of flexing joints have to move properly. And I don't think they could do that with a practical um, arm piece. So what they did was just wear that, um, you know, stand-in piece, put some tracking markers on it, and then Luma would, you know, add in, add in, add it in as CG. Um, so that's mm. how they did it. Um, the other thing I was going to say about that sequence in, in DC is that, you know, every now and then they do resort to a digi-double. So... I think Natasha sort of jumps off a bridge with a grappling hook and, um, you know, the Winter Soldier sort of oh, jumping on great, cars. That's a great shot when she lands and she sort of yeah. lands perfectly and keeps yeah. running. That's a cool moment. But, <laughs> but, you know, I was never really taken out of the film by the fact that those were probably digi, well, were digi-double shots. And, you know, that's that's kind of adds to the sequence too. You know what I think? I, I think the actor Sebastian Stan needs a huge um, amount of points because in the first film, he just seemed like your all-American kid kind of buddy bloke. Didn't seem like he was, you know, had a lot of dramatic uh, depth to his character. It wasn't bad. It was just, you know, in this one, he, I almost didn't believe it was the same actor. Um, he was... Uh, badass. He was uh, a good villain. He was tortured. That scene where he's getting his memory wiped again, uh, it's really harrowing. I, I don't know about you guys. I thought he was a. Uh, he just stunned me with how good he was in this film. And I hope I, I understand he's signed like a nine picture deal. I hope they got a lot more in store for him. Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be great to see more from that actor. I, I guess I don't know. I didn't. I didn't really remember him. I mean, I know the character Bucky from the 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 Marvel comics, but I wasn't really, um, and, and they, his death in the first movie is different than his death in the comic books and stuff. And it's sort of, he seemed like he was kind of almost like a, a throwaway character that provides a certain amount of motivation to move the plot forward in the first film. So, and I was never really aware of the story, the comic book story, um, about the winter soldier and it being Bucky and that he comes back um, as until I saw this movie that really wasn't part of my conscious consciousness about these, uh, this world, but, and he was good, but he also, uh, I don't, does he have any, he has maybe one or two lines in the movie, right? He doesn't have very many, uh, spoken, uh, no, no, he's a dark brooding chap. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not making that that up. I think he literally has signed a nine picture deal with Marvel. Yeah, I think I saw that too. So yeah, I think the the role that he comes to play, if I'm not mistaken, is much more uh, elaborate. I mean, it's it would be interesting to see. I think I even heard read recently, right? They were saying that the Marvel, it, it'll be interesting to see how long they can sustain this kind of hit factory and how long the audiences sort of stay, um, you know, ensconced in that world because it, it it it. I think they said they have movies planned out till twenty. 20 is that possible oh, I think it's 2023 2028 or something yeah it's like even longer than that yeah i mean that's pretty wild i will say this i hope they bloody well work because it's a hell of a lot of good work for a whole bunch of visual effects artists oh that's for sure yeah um i i certainly concur with you and on i don't that think one. they've really had a dud yet i mean i had some criticisms of thor one but it did okay at the box office i had some criticisms of shoulder one and uh iron man three though 
I was told that I was an idiot for that because Iron Man 3 apparently is loved by some fans. But um, in all those cases, there were sort of some mild criticisms, but not like I didn't think they were good films. And uh, but that's quite a lot of films. That in the Avengers and stuff. And uh, you're starting to get up there in, in, um, in movie counts. And I know I would love to see a Hulk film um, with this version of the Hulk. Uh, mm-hmm. And I guess after the previous ones not working, I can see why they haven't done that yet. But well, it's complicated. I think it's complicated to go back now and do, you know, the the, the rebooting of some of these characters and franchises uh, over and over again to continuously go back and reboot. Like, I mean, I've had several students uh, as well as you know friends of mine, peers who, and I haven't seen either one, so I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying anything about the effects or anything about the story, but I know a lot of people are just exhausted at the idea of the reboot of the Spider-Man franchise, which I know is owned by a different studio. So there's, you know, weird issues with how that sort of gets distributed and stuff. But the fact that they've gone back after making, you know, what I think was a pretty good, at least first two films of the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man to go back and revisit it and reboot that franchise so soon after the previous films, which I think has something to do with maintaining the rights or something like that is sort of a, it's an interesting choice. You know, I think it's, um, well, we're going to be discussing that in the next upcoming VFX show, so I won't go there now. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, but <laughs> not to talk about the effects, but I just think when we're talking about, you know, the, the, the world that these movies inhabit and, the expanse of that world and the, the the longevity of those characters and the willingness of the audience of audiences globally to continue to participate in that world. I guess that's all I'm sort of wondering is how long can you keep beating that drum? Well, while we're on way. that though, don't don't. I mean, it, I don't know. Again, I'm not into comic books, but it, it was my perception that the um, uh, the DC Comics effective their version of the Avengers both came first. Um, and was significantly more sort of star powery with Batman and Superman and everything else. And you mean so, Justice League? Yeah. Justice League, and yeah. so uh, to be in a situation now where you'd have to say that uh, it's the other way around, Avengers, you know, is clearly the kind of dominant sort of. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it depends. It depends on I think the the persuasion of the individual or the age of the individual too. You're talking to like for me, it was always Marvel over you know, the DC world in terms of my interests as a kid. But that being said, you know, I'm still a sucker for like a great Superman movie, probably more so than I am for a great Batman movie. Oh as, my God, as we, you as shut we up about it. <laughs> Love I of think... God, you poor, tragic individual. <laughs> Mike, I think in terms of the sort of comic book franchise too, the, the, the big test this year might be um, the um, Guardians movie. I mean, I'm having a total blank on the name of it. Guardians, um, Guardians of, the of the Galaxy. Galaxy, yeah. Because I, I think a lot of people aren't as familiar with that. You know, well, also it's book. on paper ridiculously stupid. Yes, but the trailers that I've seen have made me think that, wow, they really are taking a different approach and it's it's kind of comedic and offhand and I think you know that's what they're really going for. But but as in terms of like the franchise that we're talking about, I think that one's Will it be, be a test. franchise too far? Well, we don't know until yeah. it comes out. Will I guess, it be but... there jumping the shark? I will say this. I did like the comedy in this film provided by um, uh, this great running gag they had of Black Widow trying to hook up uh, Captain America on a date. I mean, I did actually I think that was hysterically I totally funny. Totally agree. Yeah, it's, um, and it was you know, so Debbie much fun. Debbie and accounts kind of thing. It's like, really? Yeah. I mean, that was just really well done. And it I played to totally her strengths agree. and it 
He needed somebody, I think. It was a very bright decision to have her in the film. I think she did some great action sequences, but you know, just for exposition and stuff, you need somebody else in the car when they're driving somewhere to discuss stuff to to uh, explain to the audience what's kind of going on. And I when don't I think, think you would have got that from Falcon. Yeah. And I think too, you know, I mean, she is she Scarlett Johansson is become I mean, she's always been a big star, but she's getting bigger and bigger in my mind as a star in terms of her just her uh her clout, you know, as an actor mm. and her ability to carry a movie. I just saw, um, I had read the book, but I just saw the film she did with um, Jonathan Glazer, uh, Under the Skin. Oh, Under the Skin. Which, yeah. uh, I mean, is weird as all get out, but man, it's it's amazing. It's awesome. And she is so good. Like, she's so compelling. And it's got a, some really interesting... Uh, visual effects in it too which for anybody who's uh, a fan of this show i think might be interested to check it out if it's uh, but it's a, a real small kind of independent more independent film but when chris evans is on screen with scarlett johansson i'm not saying it's a mismatch but she is where your eye goes i mean she her performance i'm not talking just that she's good looking but you know she i i think she has enormous screen presence Oh, I agree. Yeah, she's yeah. incredibly charismatic. Yeah. But but that being said, too, though, I do think Chris Evans, like, I mean, you know, he was, I, I was like, who? You know, when they cast him in the yeah. first Captain America movie. But, I mean, I, in this movie, like, I, I have to admit, like, I kind of dig the guy. He's, pre- he's pretty cool. <laughs> like, I, I think grew- the elevator sequence was a good oh, yeah. sequence. That's a good use of Captain America. He's got that kind of um, optimistic, but it doesn't come off as arrogant kind of uh, attitude. He's way outnumbered. Um, but he's a nice guy in the sense that he's just not evil and, and uh, nasty and, and dark. And we as the audience warm to him in those situations. But I'm just saying next to Scarlett Johansson, I don't think Chris Evans has the same magnetic appeal. I don't think it's bad. I just think the same thing as when I watch Thor, right? My eye goes to Loki because I just find him to be um, <laughs> uh, terrifically powerful. I, I think though they did a good job in this film in Winter Soldier of of making it so Chris Evans isn't sure what he, you know, the thing that he has to face is that he doesn't know what he wants to do with his life. You know, he saved the world a couple of times. (laughs) But he... (laughs) Ah, what next? Yeah. And I think, you know, they always try and find some sort of um, thing that the character is looking for and and trying to work out in life. And I thought that was a good one here because it was the right time for him to start thinking about those things. And he even goes to old Peggy, you know, to ask her. So Well, I... I, I'd agree with that, but I also think the other thing that they did that was really smart in the way in which the screenplay unfolded is that, you know, what is it that's interesting about someone who, you know, fought in the Second World War on the side of the, you know, the what they call the Allied side, right? As someone who fought in the Second World War, what's interesting about somebody like that being teleported uh, to the present day? Now, I granted, it's an idealized uh, portrayal, but... I mean, it's interesting to look at, you know, the current state of, you know, the national security apparatus in, you know, at least here in the United States, but I think throughout most of sort of, you know, the quote unquote Western world, and to look at that through the lens of um, the perspective of somebody from an earlier era, and they really play that component up where he says, even there's a line in the movie, which I mean, it's in all the trailers, but it's such a great line where he says, you know, this isn't... uh, 
what does he say? Like, this is fear, not freedom or something like that, you know, and it's kind of corny, but, but at the same mm. time too, it, it resonates, you know, I mean, it's it, given yep. all the sort of um, political dialogue that's going on. Um, well, there's some very know. 1984 themes that they, mm. they, mm-hmm. they touch on. Um, you mentioned earlier Days of the Condor. Of course, Robert Redford is uh, the bad guy. It's no, no secret. Um, what do we think? I, I think it's great that they're getting actors like that to appear in the film because he has, again, enormous amount of on-screen presence. Uh, do we like him? I did, yeah. I mean, I yeah, thought, I, like I, I think he's, he's, he's a great, uh, I mean, you know, I, I saw his other film, uh, what was it, where he's on the boat, yeah, uh, yeah. All is Lost or whatever. Yeah. Um, this last uh, season and stuff. And he doesn't do as many films anymore, but I think he's a, uh, you know, he's a classic, you know, seminal actor from, you know, like one of the great eras in, you know, contemporary Hollywood history. And to see him come back and do a really just truly populist film like this, that's really just, uh, you know, popcorn movie from uh, lack of a better term, I think is, is cool. And it's cool that Marvel, and the world that they're building is appealing and attractive enough for an actor of his, um, you know, pedigree to think that, like, hey, you know, that sounds kind of fun. Like, I wouldn't mind being in Captain America as the bad guy. Like, why not? And it does add a whole nother layer um, and maybe even a whole nother audience, I don't know, to the movie. It's got a lot of cross appeal. I think also you need someone pretty powerful to be on screen. Otherwise, you're just not going to believe that Fury would work for such a dude or be influenced by such a dude. Like, he just couldn't be a, your regular renter bad guy. It had to be someone that... Because um, he had his own attitude, his own kind of wisecracking stuff with the council that made him seem believable in his relationship to Fury for me. Anyway. Yeah, I'd agree. I, uh, yeah, I, I do enjoy that they get good people um, to be part of it, and I do enjoy that uh, that they do try and sort of tie the threads together. Yes, I'm kind of curious why the hell Tony Stark didn't come and lend a hand, but, but you know, I can be forgiven. So now that they've destroyed S.H.I.E.L.D., do we have any films between now and the Avengers other than um, Guardians? Do we have any sort of in-this-universe stuff? We don't, do we? We're... No, it's just Age of Ultron next. So um, Guardians, you know, Guardians does tie in as far as I know, but I'm not sure how exactly. Well, I think it ties into that stuff that we saw at the end of Thor. Thor, When they were putting whatever that thing was. Makes me feel it's kind of off-planet. I imagine it's off-planet. I mean, the reason that they didn't have Stark in this is they can't afford the actor, right? I mean, it's just, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, one um, thing, one other quick effects thing I did want to mention, um, just in passing before we, uh, if we're getting close to wrapping this one up, but um, the other thing that I thought was just really great in this movie, I think it it went beyond even what we saw in the big battle sequence in the Avengers was the um, the digital camera work. I think all the flying cameras as well as the huge aerial cameras, I thought that the believability for for my money, um, in terms of the camera movement, uh, in all the digital environments was much more on par with what I would imagine to be believable. There were fewer of the like unreal and unbelievable camera shots, which are fun, but I think sometimes do, um, take me out of a film like this. And I thought the work that was done 
across all of the studios that was maybe supervised uh, largely by the the um, studio supervisor. I thought it was just it was really really well executed, and I just wanted to make a note of that that all the the team that helped uh, in previs as well as uh, in delivering those final cameras for the uh, 3D scene files. I thought they did a great job, and um, I think it really helped tie a lot of those elements together in a way that for me felt really much more um, like almost more real world cinema than um, fantastical cinema. I agree actually. And you mentioned previs, Matt, and one um, proof was the main studio doing previs. One sort of interesting thing that um, the guys who went to FMX picked up on was that a lot of their previs was done in almost black and white. Mm -hmm. Um, And apparently the reason for that was that Marvel had all their storyboards in black and white. And when they were creating animatics that would cut back-to-back with storyboards, they didn't want to be sort of taken out of the movie by coloured previews. Um, Ultimately, they didn't think it looked quite right, so they ended up sort of having lighter colours, especially for Captain America, things like his shield, you know, to make it stand out. But, you know, that's kind of an interesting approach to previews. but clearly they did a great job too in, in setting up some of those camera moves you're talking about, Matt. Yeah, that's cool. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, I don't uh, know. Yeah, that's neat. So um, so I think uh, we are kind of wrapping it up there. Um, I do think that uh, the, um, to reiterate on a couple of points we had earlier, I think the texturing job of that end climactic sequence, uh, something you should really give a shout out to. Not just texturing, I guess, but modeling work to the level of detail that clearly went on to not only do the environment but the um sub uh uh uh, the shipyard beneath the sea um Mm -hmm. uh, and the carriers themselves and as you say the planes on the carriers and stuff and there are a bunch of other shots we haven't even discussed um from the show but you know it's all uh it was very very good detailed work I, i think I can't get past just how much I love uh, Lola's work in this. It's just, uh, once again, proving... I mean, look, it may not be the biggest number of shots. Maybe it's a dozen, maybe it's 15, but they are faultless in an area that is traditionally been really, really hard to do. And I'm interested to see what uh, options that opens up for somebody else to come along and uh, and do something uh, different. I think Lola themselves are topping themselves, but I'm not quite sure how they're doing that. But um, yeah, it yeah, does yeah. seem to be like hard work, not just... It's not like somebody's just got a better algorithm or somebody's implemented a SIGGRAPH paper. I mean, from everything that I've read, from what you've done, Ian, it just seems like they're just working the problem, um, but in a very manual kind of hardcore sense. Yeah, and, you know, doing it with Flame, although although they said that they hadn't used one aspect of Flame before, um, and that was literally the, the way that they would pin one performance with another. And I think that the... the um, you know, it's probably an, an old school solution, um, but using those sort of blend shapes and snapping points together was the way they really were able to solve older skin with with Haley's obviously youth, younger skin. Yeah. So, uh, so all in all, a uh, a really good outing. I think it's, um, and certainly from my point of view, a better film than uh, more enjoyable film, I should say, than uh, what we saw with um, I, the only disappointment I have in this film and I'll confess it from a purely fan point of view, is I really hoped hanging around in the cinema I'd get something more interesting than Bucky looking at uh, the Smithsonian. But that's just me. I agree. But the one thing you did get in this movie that was so awesome and was just <laughs> so quick and that you did not, didn't even expect that it had me laughing my ass off in the theater was Nick Fury's gravestone. 
which had the epitaph, right? It's the Ezekiel, yes. or what it is, yes. the path of the righteous man, dot, yes. dot, dot, which I just thought was the coolest little like <laughs> add-on where it's like a riff on his speech in uh, Pulp Fiction, right? So yeah. I just thought that was so, so that cool. Was, and what a, what a great sense of humor to just have that in there in the background where it's like only if you're looking for it are you going to see that, you know? And I, I just thought that was just a genius and just hilarious uh, tip of the hat. Now, when we, when we come in years to time to look back on the great comic moments from this franchise, that was right up there with the, there's a guy over there playing Galactica. didn't think we saw, but we did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Avengers. That guy's playing Galactica. Uh, yeah. I also love the little lean in and hail Hydra. I, I don't know if you've seen the memes that have resulted from that, but that's that's been cracking me up for a couple of weeks as well. <laughs> Yeah, that's so great. I love all that stuff. I mean, it's that's what makes movies like this so much fun, too, is all the sort of the cultural touchstones that are kind of, you know, um, dipped into throughout. And it, it just makes it a lot of fun for, for uh, I think, people more, uh, you know, maybe you know more in our demographic or whatever you know like to have those kind of elements thrown in, you know, that the kids probably don't pick up on a lot of that stuff, but the grown-ups do. Oh, yeah. I mean, there is a lot of that peppered through. There is definitely stuff for different groups. I mean, I was watching the TV show the other night, and there was tons of hardcore references to stuff that I wasn't aware of in the comics, but there were just little bits like, oh, I bid on that film <laughs> years ago. <laughs> and my kids were like, what? And it goes, uh, the man thing. And they're like, I've never heard of it. I'm like, yeah, well, it was a film that went straight to video, and I didn't work on it in the end. But, you know, that's a you go look it up on Google. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> so if you are a hardcore fan, there's obviously a ton of stuff in there for you. So. Yeah, it's good. Well, I think that is about it for this week. Uh, I wanted to thank everybody involved. Before we get into you guys, um, and uh, obviously we <laughs> really appreciate you, uh, Matt and Ian, for being on the show. I do want to thank uh, Todd, who is our producer on the show and puts together the show notes and stuff, and also the team that edits this together, David and uh, Jim and stuff who put it all together. Um, it takes a village to make a podcast. So, uh, Matt, where can people find you if they're interested? Uh, you can find me uh, over my summer break. I'm off on summer break doing some uh, research this summer, but I'm available at my website, which is mattwallen.com. And Ian, obviously uh, you and I are at FX Guide. Let's um, just sneak a uh, peek a couple of things that are coming up. So uh, Matt, you won't know about this, but obviously we've been working on a bunch of stories because of the summer blockbusters that are coming up. And I, I think it's safe to say we have some pretty good things in the can, Ian. Oh, yeah. Um, if you head to the site now, obviously there's the Captain America stuff, but we've just published something on The Amazing Spider-Man 2, and you got a chance to talk to the VFX soup, Jerome Chen. Um, there's a podcast for that. Yeah, we go into a bit of a, I wouldn't say a rat hole, but I just decided that I'd have a chat to him about uh, facial performance stuff because I think his opinion is so interesting. And uh, that's all in that uh, FX podcast 274. Uh, but there's also the making of Electro stuff we did uh, with Wired. And coming up, I can um, I can tease. Uh, I've done an amazing sit-down, uh, like long, long uh, podcast chat with the uh, director of Godzilla. And that'll be coming up um, around the time Godzilla hits the cinemas. And uh, Gareth and I discuss a whole bunch of stuff. But man, I just so enjoyed that. I think you guys are going to love it as a podcast. So keep an eye out for that one coming up. Uh, and then there cool. are... Can't wait for that. Ian, you've got a really cool piece that you and I both worked on um, uh, in terms of uh, rides at uh, amusement park type things. Like, um, oh, yeah. When, when it's out of the ride film and it's covering things like the new Star Tours and Transformers the Ride and the Space Shuttle Atlantis um, experience. And 
That's and the really King Kong ride at yeah, Universal. Right? Yeah, we basically yeah. tried to, because these things come out so irregularly, um, we basically went to all of the main big sort of franchise rides in the world and spoke to the people that made them and did stuff. And it's been ages putting this together. But um, if you uh, are unable to get to those, and quite frankly, most of the time we're not able to get to them, um, this is a really great opportunity to um, uh, understand what some of those things are. And I've got to say, some of them, I think... Uh, breathtakingly interesting experiences. I remember when I first saw Terminator 2.5D, I mean, it just blew my mind at how good that was and what they were able to pull off once you own the cinema and own the theatre and effectively what you can do with the theatre and custom build it. Um, There are some others that I'm a little less impressed with when I saw them in the flesh. They sounded really good on paper until I actually saw them, but uh, we'll be covering all of those and a bunch more coming up, uh, of course, on FX Guide as we head into the summer. Are there any films, Matt, you're looking forward to coming out? I mean, the thing I was really most looking forward to was the one I mentioned before, the Under the Skin, only because I had read the book. And it's the book is sort of a, you know, a, a riff on like contemporary modern food production. And how right. there's so many things about the way in which our food is prepared that we don't really realize. And so it's kind of a satirical novel. Um, but I was super excited to see that. And then I, I can't deny it. I mean, I, I can't wait to see uh, the Gareth Edwards Godzilla and you know, anytime we're watching uh, TV at home here with my family um, and my son is in the in the room, if a commercial comes on for Godzilla, he's like, quiet, quiet, everybody be quiet. It's a Godzilla commercial. <laughs> Even if he's seen it before, he wants to watch it again because he is he is pumped for that movie. Like, I think it's going to scare the bajillicans out of him, as you might say. But he um, he is super excited. And and I, I can't help but catch that infectious uh, excitement and i think guardians of the galaxy i i'm optimistic i don't know anything about the uh, comic book but well i but don't know it, much m- about guardians but i did get to spend some time with the guys in la including gareth um on godzilla so i can't talk about it all i can say is a gareth puts gareth's spin on it in a way that is so refreshingly great that cool. uh i i just yeah full, yeah i can't wait i can't wait to see that one it looks really fun just absolutely a cracker. Okay, so uh, thanks so much for being with us on the show. Uh, we really appreciate your uh, support. We've got obviously a lot of films coming up in the summer, but there's a lot of other stuff happening at FX Guide and of course over at FX PhD. In fact, Gareth used to teach at fxphd.com, so check it out. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm Mike Simmel. Until next time, see you. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.